one way or another, sometime soon, we're all going to see Jesus, whether it's just through the natural order of time and, and, and the taking of our last breath on earth here and our first breath in eternity, or whether it's through him coming to snatch away his bride. And um, I so desperately want him to be as familiar as possible when I meet him. I don't want him to be a stranger. I don't want to think of him as sort of the sum of some theological studies, but he's sort of a distant figure in some way. Uh, I want to know him well. And, um, you know, we read the Gospels because it helps us to know him, to um, see what he's like, and, and by virtue of that, recognize what the Father is like. We learn about him in the Gospels. We see him in the way he interacts, in the way he teaches, the miracles that he does, the kinds of miracles he does. Uh, we learn so much about him in the Gospels. Um, and we see what he did on the cross. We see what is accomplished, in, at least on some level, through the cross and the resurrection as it's recorded in the Gospels. And also, as Jesus himself said in John 5, the whole of Scripture speaks of him. You know, um, said to the Pharisees, those who were religiously educated above most anybody. And he said, you know, you study the Scriptures because it's in them you think you have eternal life. But it is they that testify of me. In other words, for all of your study in the Word, the fact that you don't recognize me as the point of all of it is stunning, staggering, tragic. Um, They had a depth of theological knowledge that would rival any scholar today in terms of memorization and quoting scriptures and those kinds of things. You have to admire them for their ability to do that. But you have to weep for them for their non-recognition of who the scriptures were speaking of. Well, of all the books in the scripture that I think take a hold of what Jesus uh, did in terms of what the gospel tells about and all that led up to it in the Old Testament, I think the book that, at least to me, best synthesizes all of who Jesus is and what he did, uh, if there could be one book, uh, I, I wrestle with this. I wonder if this is you know, I guess if you ask me at different times, I might choose a different book, but I think most often if I could have one book that sums up the most about the person of Christ and what he accomplished and helps me to understand the depth of what he accomplished. And this is really important to me personally, like really grasping, understanding, and appreciating and responding to uh, everything that Jesus did. I would have to say that to me, that book is the book of Romans. Uh, it is hard to match the depth of thought-provoking insight that through the Holy Spirit, Paul, who's uniquely prepared for the ministry that he had in the writing of this book and the other epistles that he wrote, but this pinnacle masterpiece exposition on what Jesus accomplished uh, is hard to match. It is uh, in one single volume, uh, this breathtaking treatise on the person and work of Christ. And there is no more important thing for us to pour ourselves into than the knowledge, not just about him, but the knowledge of him, that we might see him more clearly, that we might grasp who he is, and and again, the depth of what he accomplished at the cross and in the resurrection. Paul in this book, um, Sounds like I'm giving an introduction to the book. We're actually pretty well into it. We're in chapter 5, and we're going to be in chapter 5 today. So if you want to grab hold of your Bible and open her up. Um, You know, 
part of what Paul goes to lengths to help us understand, en route to understanding what Christ did, is to help us understand the the woeful position that we were in. And the fact that we can talk about it as a past tense thing, to consider the depth of of the wickedness in our in our hearts, which you know, most of the time when we say that, we think, um, well, I'm not as bad as I could be. I mean, I certainly could be worse than I am. Certainly, there are people who are worse than I am, and that kind of thing. But when we think about the depth of of the wickedness that exists, the the depravity in our hearts, in that, it's not just expressed through, uh, you know. The, the particular categories of evil that I practice or something. But it just, it speaks every bit as much to that as it does to the idea that the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. It is intertwined in self-seeking and pride and arrogance. You know, wickedness sounds like a particularly bad level of something. But when we talk about pride and arrogance, well, now that that becomes something that we can get our minds around all uh, a little bit better. Uh, none of us probably would argue that we're not arrogant or prideful from time to time. Well, the fact that it happens likely more frequently, it expresses itself more than we are willing to admit or recognize even. Again, that's to quote Jeremiah, like we don't even know the depth of our uh, the wickedness in our hearts. So we probably don't even recognize how often we're being arrogant and how often our motivations are misguided and self-centered. Um, how the things that we say... Uh, might have the chance to be filtered through our perception of or our, our desire to be perceived a certain way. But Jesus cut through all that and he said, if you think this in your heart or if this is what resides within you, you as well as done the thing. Well, Paul in, in Romans goes to lengths to demonstrate the reality of this, explain the reality of this, um, help us understand and get our minds around um, and embrace the reality of this. So that when the when it comes to seeing the gospel, <clears throat> when it comes to seeing the person of Christ and all of his perfection, his complete sinless nature, we stand next to him and we fall apart because we we don't compare, we don't stack up, we can't possibly. Uh, we might think we're doing better than somebody else because again, there's varying degrees of just how bad we might be or act, but none of us compares to the person of Christ. Well, not only do we recognize how completely short we fall compared to him. But when we recognize the hopeless nature of that condition, it's not a matter of, well, if I'm good enough, I can get in. There is no good enough. One one moral failing, one sin, is enough to demonstrate our sinfulness, and therefore we are disqualified. Um, and the fact that it, whether or not it's even expressed the scriptures make clear, and in Romans as well as, and even better than in most places throughout scripture, more fully is a better way to put that. I mean, to sound better, but in a more full scope kind of an approach, the book of Romans helps us understand that fact that we are not, we're not more or less righteous. We are either righteous or unrighteous. And if we understand that, we know that we are unrighteous. Well, then how do we become righteous? Because to be in God's presence forever, to know that we have an eternity that is secure, where when we die, we know we're going to be with him, uh, where we can even count on him, um, you know, inviting us into that deep place of relationship, even with him now. How can we have that if we're unrighteous? Well, the book of Romans, again, goes to lengths. Uh, and in the book of Romans, Paul goes to lengths. Uh, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to help us answer that question 
to not only understand our predicament, but to understand what God did about it. Um, and so among all the passages in the book of Romans, one of the loftiest places where we see this reality expressed, not fully explained necessarily, the book as a whole needs to be read, but one of the places where this is expressed in such beauty is in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6, where we are today, where Paul says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will a righteous man uh, will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And we ought to recognize the emphasis in this. By contrast, you know, maybe for someone good, you might be willing to jump on the grenade or something like that. That's, that's noble and that's good. But what sets God's love apart is that it was when there was no reason to do this for us. We were at enmity with God. We're his enemies. It's in that kind of a condition that, that God acts. And he says here, and again, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, this is where all the math breaks down. Uh, this is where the equation no longer makes sense to me. Um, not that I don't understand what he did to some degree, you know, I mean, insofar as a person can, you know. But what I don't really understand is the why. Well, because God loves us. Right, but that just pushes the question back. Why? Why does he love us? Um, and he clearly does. I mean, the scriptures, you know, make that point. You know, sometimes we can get so clinical in our understanding of our faith that we forget that God does love us with a love that is full and, and, and outreaching and giving and other-centered passionate uh, in, in not some Harlequin romance way, but just passionate in the sense that even though we can't figure out any reason why he would, he reaches out in the person of his son and he grabs hold of us, much like Peter sinking in the water, save me. He reaches down and picks him up. Well, in terms of our eternity, Lord, save me. I am going down into the flames. I, I, I am lost. I, I don't have any in inwardly redeeming quality or something. There's nothing within me that would drive you to be like, oh man, I need to save him. No, it, it's purely his love. I don't know why he does. And I'm not trying to sound, you know, falsely humble or something like this. I mean, I, I do recognize I'm not. And I, even before I was a believer, I was not as bad as I could be. I did some horrendous things in my life that I am massively ashamed of. But I wasn't somebody that you would have seen as being the worst person that you knew or something like that. But that doesn't in any way make me more righteous than somebody who is. I am unrighteous. Any sinner is unrighteous. And we bring nothing to the table. There's nothing that I do or I am that makes God love me. But he does. Uh, there may be people out there that have a better grip on the why, but I haven't found them and I haven't read them and I haven't seen them and I've never heard an explanation given uh, that really satisfies that question. I don't know why. I have no idea why. But yet nonetheless, 
this love that God shows that is not even something that we can sort of understand. Like I would, I would again, maybe jump out in front of a car for somebody like a child or something. Well, this kid is innocent or whatever, you know, deserves to be saved or whatever. But while we were sinners, or as he said in, in verse uh, six, it, when we were still without strength, when we were fully, firmly footed in our current predicament, not when we were starting to show signs of improvement or something, but when we were in the thick of it, while we were sinners, stained, unclean, unworthy, completely outside of the, uh, the grace of God in that. While we're in that place, God reached out and he saved us and Christ died for us. Much more then, now Paul will say this a couple of times in the next few verses. I'll plan on kind of getting through verse 11. But Paul will say a number of times as if to this kind of a thing, as if to say, and even on top of that, and that's awesome, but even more so, look at this too that goes with this. And so that's what he's saying. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That's a mouthful right there. There's a lot right there. Uh, even on top of that, the fact that Christ died for us added to that is that we've now been justified by his blood. Again, there is nothing that we've done to earn this. We are completely bankrupt in this. We have nothing to bring that even in a infinity, infinitesimal little amount would ever contribute to what has been done. It's very plain here. We've been justified by his blood and by nothing else. Justified. We've been taken from a place of complete and total guilt and been made just, made righteous. We've been changed from one thing to another, and it's by his blood and by his blood alone. And because this is true, we shall be saved from wrath through him. In other words, when God does pour his wrath out, we will stand clear of it. We will not be part of that. We will be reserved from it and preserved from it. We will be uh, we have been rescued from that which is certainly the doom that is coming upon uh, man that is guilty and unredeemed and unregenerate in this. We are free from this now, all because we have been justified because of Christ's blood shed for us. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled, in other words, while we were yet without strength, while we were sinners, if it's at that point in that condition we were enemies of God. If it's in that condition that we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more. And then as if again, saying built on this whole idea, um, we're reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In other words, we will not face the, the judgment and the condemnation and all that comes with that. But instead, we shall experience the salvation that comes because we've been justified, because of the blood of Christ. There are two forks, there are two, there's a fork in the road going two directions. The one leads to judgment and destruction. We have been taken from that path. And on top of that, we've been put on the path that ultimately we'll see are inheriting all that is promised. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse uh, 3 and on, 3 through 9, uh, I encourage you to read it, speaks about this wonderful inheritance as undefiled, will not fade away, all this kind of thing. 
reserved in heaven for us, or kept in heaven for us, who are kept for it by the power of God. Um, There is no condemnation, therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, No condemnation. There There is no judgment that awaits us. And it's not because of what we did. It is because of his shed blood that we have been justified. For if we were, uh, or I should go on and just say here, uh, verse 11, just to finish the thought. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. There was a time when we were scared to death of standing before God. And by the way, if as an unbeliever, you don't recognize your actual predicament and you think that everything's great and it's going to be awesome you know, when you die and all this kind of thing, it's because you don't understand these things. It's because you are, without, I'm not trying to sound insulting, but you are ignorant of the reality of your, of your circumstance. But those of us who know him now, those who have been justified by the blood of Christ, who have been taken off the road that leads to destruction and now are on the road that will see our salvation fully realized, and without any chance of us being taken off that road and put back on it, it's done now. It's finished. We, and Paul makes that point here when he says, we have received the reconciliation. There's not some thing left for us to know that we'll someday uh, receive that reconciliation. Paul says it as a finished thing. And because that's true, we no longer have to be afraid of what it will be like to be with God. But instead, we rejoice in God. We experience joy at the thought of being with him. Uh, we look with great anticipation to be with him because after all, if we know that there is joy in this place or experience, we want to go to that place or have that experience, right? Joy is something we long for and want and run toward if possible. We're told that we can rejoice in, in, in God now because of Christ's finished work. Um, so when a believer speaks with a longing to see Jesus. It's not that we have a death wish or we're looking forward to dying for dying's sake or something like that, but we want to be with the one who loved us like this. I want to I find out why. I, I want to be with the one who loved me even though I'm completely not lovable. Uh, and especially when I was in that condition prior to knowing Christ. Why did you love me like that? What, what on earth would have ever prodded you in any way? And, and the answer is nothing prodded him other than his own divine love. Uh, John in his, his own writings would say, God is love. It's not that love is something that God has. Love comes from him. It flows from his very person. This is why when we see distortions of love, whether it's sexual immorality or of any kind, um, what we see is a literal, genuine distortion of what love actually is. God is love. In other words, love is defined by the very person of God. And therefore, when the Bible says that he loves us, he's not just demonstrating something that he learned or that he grew in in some way. He is lavishing upon us something of himself that is rich and pure and perfect and beautiful and is being lavished upon those who are anything but. Uh, it It is the great mystery of the divine nature of God. Why does he love? It's it's a mystery to me. Maybe it's not to you, but I will freely admit I don't understand it. And I guess in a way that's a gift uh, to recognize, and again, I'm not trying to sound falsely 
uh, you know, humble or trying to do any of that kind of a thing. I just believe it's, I believe I'm thankful really for kind of being brought to a place of considering that about myself, that I might come to recognize the wonder and the mystery of God's love for me. Again, summed up so eloquently here, um, or at least if not fully summed up, expressed in, in really beautiful fashion, wonderfully articulated here in the passage we looked at today. And I'm going to stop there, by the way, too. The next section is also wonderful and expresses the the headship of Christ in, in redemption, uh, in contrast to the headship of Adam uh, in the fall and this kind of thing. And we'll talk more about that. But, but you know, the, the, the beauty of, of these two concepts, um, what we've read today and what we'll read next time, shows the beautiful intertwining of theology and, uh, you know, in terms of technically understanding things, but it being right at home with sort of the, uh, the very thought-provoking inner uh, consideration of, of our condition and the worship that explodes and expresses from the one who comes to understand um, these ideas. Um, so I, I feel like I'm on the verge of just rambling, so I'm going to stop there and just let those things sit where they are. But let me encourage you to read the passage again and, and do it theologically, do it devotionally. Let it become a time of worship for you because in these words is a, a tremendous insight into what Christ did for us and what was fully his job and, and, and work that he did, completely devoid of anything on our behalf. This is true love, one that is not self-seeking, one that is just freely given, and especially given to people like us. It's, it's amazing. It's truly amazing. Amazing love, how can it be that thou wouldst die for one such as I? Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace toward us in sending your Son to die for our sins while we were in the condition of being sinful and at enmity with you, enemies of God. It wasn't while we were trying to be the best people we could be. There's always, even in our own attempts to be good, it's so that we'll be accepted. We have an ulterior motive to that kind of thing. It's not pure. There's even a self-seeking in that. But you demonstrated your love toward us in our sinful condition, our completely dead-in-sin condition. And it's, it's to us that you demonstrated that love in sending your Son ultimately to die for our sins, to pay the debt that we owed, to cover and even take away completely all that we are, all that we've done. How can we ever thank you for that? How can we ever respond in anything resembling that kind uh, of love or, or even muster up the thanksgiving that, that you deserve? But you know that we can't. You know we don't even have it. We don't have anything that we could ever give in response to that, except simply just to love you back and to worship you. We thank you, Lord, that we come to know what true love is when we look at you, because you are love. We thank you that we see the cross. We see, on the one hand, the horrific nature of our sin and the cost and the penalty of it, but we also see the love of God. Help us never to take that for granted. Help us never to think so wickedly as to think that we somehow deserve such a penalty to be paid in such horrible means. We're not worthy of this. We don't deserve this. This is just your love on display. And we thank you for that. Father, we pray that we'd walk in that knowledge and that remembrance, and that we would 
always rest in and worship you in response to and never again take for granted or think a light thing, your love for us. We praise you and thank you for your love and your grace and all that has come with it. Thank you, Father, for who you are, what you've done. Thank you for your Son who demonstrated this. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who seals us and helps us to consider such thoughts as these and to consider and to to wonder at your great and abiding love. These are gifts. Thank you. We praise you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.